Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Brian Kloss is a former political operative, associate professor of global politics at University College London, and a columnist at the Washington Post. He's a podcaster. Well, all the best people are. He's also the author of four books, and he's only 35. Kloss's field of study is authoritarians and dictators, how they get power, how they use it. His new book is called Corruptible, because power corrupts, right? What follows is a very long, freewheeling conversation with Professor Kloss, which starts in the obvious place. How did the idea for Corruptible come about? When I try to tell people what I do professionally, I, I often say the shorthand of I study bad people who do bad things, often with immense power. And I've, I've done that as an academic, you know, with authoritarianism, the breakdown of democracy, fieldwork around the world. And at some point I started to think, you know, maybe there's something to these systems that are around these people uh, that we need to understand more. And maybe there's some of these people who aren't, you know, the the despot in, in faraway countries, but actually are the despot at the neighborhood homeowners association or in mid-level management. And so it, what, what I think was really interesting for me in writing this book was that I discovered that there's a series of people who are also researching bad people who do bad things, but they're doing it from the perspective of neuroscience or psychology or evolutionary biology, uh, fields that just don't talk to political science. So what I tried to do was take a, a more holistic approach to who gets power and how it changes us, as the subtitle suggests, based on you know not just my own interactions and, and interviews with lots of nefarious figures, but also... Uh, types of research that I just frankly had never encountered in my professional life before. What was one of the most interesting things that you didn't know that you discovered and were surprised by? I think the realm that I was most interested in was the evolutionary aspects of this. And there's two really, the evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. Two words that I didn't even know precisely what they meant, you know, when I started researching the book. And the evolutionary biology stuff I talk about in chapter two, it's about the sort of divergence from chimpanzees and how humans differ in terms of how we structure hierarchies. And just very briefly, I mean, one of the areas I found fascinating was how the ability of us uh, to throw things with great speed and accuracy, which is something that happened, you know, tens of thousands, possibly millions of years ago, our shoulders got this little bit of cosmetic surgery done to them that allows us to to throw rocks uh, really fast and really accurately. That actually had a profound impact on how we set up hierarchies because you can kill or hurt somebody without being bigger or stronger than them. You can just be smarter than them and throw something at them when they're not uh, expecting it. And, you know, in the modern era, we have uh, we have toddlers, unfortunately, in America who kill adults, you know, with guns on a regular basis. You think about that in the chimpanzee world, you know, you're not going to have a baby chimp accidentally kill a- an adult chimp. And that has impacts on divorcing this link between size and dominance that used to uh, used to be, you know, really, really central to to our species. And then the other aspect is the evolutionary psychology, which is this idea that certain types of leadership that we gravitated towards, you know, 20,000 years ago that were adaptive and helped us survive back then still exist as templates in our brains because there's not been enough time for our brains to actually evolve. There, we, we still have fundamentally the same brains as the hunter-gatherers, but our, our lives have changed massively. And so what they, what they argue, these evolutionary psychologists, is that we have these cognitive biases 
that particularly during times of crises, uh, during times of crisis, whether it's a war, a famine, a pandemic, that we tend to gravitate towards strongman leaders, physically strong men, because in the past during crises, that was a, a safer bet. If you were running out of food or if a rival, a rival band of, of hunter-gatherers was going to attack you. And, you know, to me, I had this sort of aha moment when I was thinking about, you know, Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. And I'm like, now it makes a lot more sense what he's tapping into. And so, you know, it's, it's these connections between things that are much longer stretches of human history intersecting with, with my research, which is much more contemporary and, and much more focused on the bad people in 2021 and so on. I can understand how this new knowledge would appeal to you. But did you ever match it up with your own particular knowledge of political science? That to me, it's a huge jump. And, and, and I felt this when I was reading the book. You know, it, it, it was very interesting to, to read about power couched in these evolutionary biological terms. But did you ever push back and say, but yes, what does that have to do with a highly evolved and organized society, democratic society, Republican democratic society with voting? I mean, we're not even talking about monarchies where you get to be king because of who your father was. There's no choice involved for the society. That's your king. Yeah, you know, I, I was skeptical. And I think I think one of the, the, the things, the challenges of writing a, a big sort of sweeping book about a topic as complex as power is that you have a tendency, I think, in, in research to have the aha moment where you say, this explains everything. I mean, the world's more complicated than that. There are no aha moments. There, there are incremental bits of knowledge that pieced together can help us understand the world. And I think, you know, when I'm talking about evolutionary psychology, I'm not saying, oh, well, that's why Vladimir Putin's in power and let's ignore Russian history and Russian structures and, you know, the particular dynamics of late 1990s, you know, post-Soviet uh, power in, in, in the post-Soviet Union space and all this. What I'm saying is that for a certain type of person, this part of your sort of cognitive bias that's potentially embedded in a deep historical aspect of our species may play a role at a, at a critical moment. You know, and I, I think it's also something that fits together with aspects like, you know, why did Trump give the American carnage speech when he was inaugurated, where he said, you know, this, and these lines of I alone can fix it and everything has gone to hell. I mean, to, to a sense, there's you know, this idea that if you amplify this sense of threat and foreboding and crisis, that that's going to play up that cognitive bias. Now, of course, there's plenty of people who just ignore it or are more rational in their assessments of leaders. What I'm trying to get at is I think I, I, I've been struck by how when I was uncovering this research, I was thinking, why don't political scientists at least grapple with this? Why aren't economists grappling with what we say? Why aren't evolutionary biologists grappling with what I say about, you know, what it's like to sit down with a former despot? And we're in these little niches. And so, you know, I think it's very, very stupid, frankly, that when we're trying to sort out these problems, we end up focusing, you know, political scientists focus on systems. They, and I think systems are massively important. I give them a very big role in the book. But psychologists focus on individual agency. I mean, it, that obviously matters. Vladimir Putin's psychology is important. The voters are going to sometimes be responding to systems, you know, economic decline, fears of immigration, but there'll also be sometimes, you know, these sort of tendencies that are deep-seated within us. And I, what I was trying to do is not to say, this is why it happened, you know, 
one-to-one, there's a perfect correlation. Rather, it's that here's a lot of contributing factors that, that ultimately end up with these really corrosive dynamics where most of us agree that the people in power are not optimal. And I think that's really, you know, what it's all about is trying to figure out that complexity so that we can actually fix it. Power is such an interesting word. I'm not going to say thanks to Twitter, because I don't think anyone should ever say thanks to Twitter, even though you you live on Twitter and I live on Twitter. Your kingdom is substantially bigger than mine. Um, but I see these usages, particularly, I mean, people under 40, under 35, you know, I mean, your age, actually, they anthropomorphize it. Power does not ever relent without a demand. I mean, that words to that effect. And I read that and I say, Jesus, what do you mean by power? And so I'm going to ask you, what do you mean by power? Yeah, so this was this was a difficult question because it's one of those topics, it's sort of like democracy in that way, where it's, it's you recognize it when you see it. But I think there is a, a need to have a more precise definition. So what I had as the working definition in my mind was, one, it involves some level of hierarchy. So power is relational, which means that you can't have power unless you have people below you that you can cause to do things. And that's the second part of it, is that Power means, you know, actor A can make actor B do something that actor B wouldn't otherwise do. And, you know, it's a very broad definition, but I think it it works for most of what we're talking about. So I think it's this dimension of like an asymmetric relationship with a hierarchy, and it also involves some level of coercion uh, that, that forces people to do things they might not otherwise do. And so, you know, we have this everywhere from bosses to politicians to, you know, bullies and so on. And... You know, I, I think one of the things that's that's interesting about it is it's also sometimes quite amorphous. I mean, you say that thing about, you know, my, I have followers on Twitter. I mean, does that make me powerful? I'm not coercing them, but I am potentially influencing conversations and so on. So, you know, there's different stripes of power that we're talking about. And what I'm focusing on most in the book isn't the sort of ideational power of, of ideologies and ideas. It's more about... Uh, people who are in positions of authority higher up the hierarchy uh, than others. And that's what I'm focusing on the most. You're a political scientist. But before you, you, you became an academic, you worked in practical politics. How, how did that come about? It's funny in hindsight, because the reason I left U.S. politics was because, you know, this was 2010 in Minnesota, the election that I, uh, I ended up as the co-manager of, uh, the deputy campaign manager of for um, a guy named Mark Dayton in Minnesota. And and how old were you? Uh, I was 20. Well, when I finished the campaign, I guess I was uh, 24. So, uh, you know, which I'll, I'll get to in a second, because sort of an interesting story about power itself. But um, I left U.S. politics and went to become an academic because I thought American politics just sort of worked. Something that was an understandable view in 2010 in Minnesota, where, you know, the biggest problems were budget deficits. That view looks very silly at the moment, I would say. But what was interesting about it was... And this is where I have a massive juxtaposition of how I understand the world of politics and power and how I think academics traditionally do who study this stuff from 30,000 feet is it's much more informal uh, than and much more accidental than I think a lot of theorists suggest. So, you know, I was hired as the driver. Uh, I drove the candidate around. That's what I did. Now, I had a lot of FaceTime with him as a result, and, you know, he knew I had a political science background. He thought I was smart. He started giving me some memos to do some policy-related work. I did well on that. He made me policy director two months after I joined the campaign. He made me deputy campaign manager two months after that. 
so when I was first promoted, this was in 2009. I mean, I was 23 years old. And uh, and by the end of the campaign, I mean, that whole, whole massive team uh, reporting to me. I mean, it was a huge number of people, much, much older and much more experienced than me, which created its own weird power dynamics. But what was, what was interesting about that experience that I've taken away is – when we talked to voters, I said, you know, why are we voting? Why are you voting for us? Because they'd often come up to me and say, oh, we're, we're going to cast a ballot for you. Uh, one of the things that they would say is, oh, we like the department store that your dad founded because he, you know, Mark Dayton's father was responsible for Dayton's and then ultimately for Target, the massive corporation in, uh, uh, headquartered in Minnesota. And sometimes they'd say, oh, you, you look like such a nice guy with your dogs because we have these, video, these ads up where he was playing with his dogs and so on. That sort of superficiality was really common uh, on the campaign trail. And actually, we did these policy briefs. I wrote them, and we could see how many people downloaded them. And it was like 40. Right? I mean, this is a place where you get like 1.2 million votes in the end. And like the education policy brief is downloaded like 40 times. So you sort of you start to think, okay, all these theories that exist about how policy drives campaigns. I mean, yeah, we endorsements were super important. The teachers union needed to download that and figure out whether we were for real or not. But, you know, I, I had this very, very strong sense that a lot of people were making judgments about the person, uh, about do we think you're a good guy? And I also thought it was strange how, you know, I rocketed up the hierarchy almost by accident. It was, it was right place, right time. I showed some level of competence. You know, the candidate had a lot of latitude to promote me, and he did, and I was very grateful for it. But, you know, then I get to, to studying uh, politics, <laughs> and one of, the, one of the lessons we had was, um, you know, how state campaigns in the U.S. work. This is at Oxford, and they're doing this whole theory and all this stuff. And I'm like... This this is totally over-theorized. Like, we are trying to make sure the candidate is happy on a day-to-day basis, that we don't have a bad news story. We're making it up as we go along. And, you know, it's not like this whole, you know, some some campaigns might be more structured, but I think a lot of it is on the fly. And so that's always caused me to think when I've done all of my work politically is I think there's a lot more accidental outcomes that happen. I think there's a lot of individual agency, much more than political science uh, gives credit to. So that's why I try to convey in the book that there's this sort of very complicated interplay between individual personalities and the systems around them. And and the argument I'm making is both that bad individuals are more drawn to power and better at getting it, but also that systems can mediate that. They can either put that effect on steroids and, and make it much worse, or they can try to counteract it and repel those people or block them or constrain them once they do get power. And indeed, some of the same people in two different situations, as I explore in a couple uh, different stories, behave very differently depending on the context. Why don't you give an example there? Yeah, so you're you're gonna this one. I think uh, hits close to home for you. It's the it's the Paul Bremer example. So uh, I, I went out and I took a ski lesson with Paul Bremer, who's now a ski instructor in Vermont. Let, let's just stop for a second. Paul Bremer. Jerry Bremer to his friends and and to the news media was essentially the viceroy sent to Iraq a few months after Saddam was overthrown by the Bush administration. And his tenure there was, for those of us who were actually in Iraq at the time, nothing short of a disaster with comic overtones. And and you interviewed him though you you've tracked him down to Vermont. Yeah, it was it was quite funny actually because I said I w- I'd like to interview you and he said, well, I'm working that day, uh, but if you want to take a ski lesson, you can you can talk to me about whatever you like on the chairlift. Um, so we we had a ski lesson for about three hours. Uh, it was quite funny because 
I grew up skiing. I'm, I'm from Minnesota. I grew up, I started skiing when I was three and my high school sport was downhill ski racing. So I was actually a bit better of a skier than he was, even though he was uh, ostensibly teaching me. But the, the, the point was then we went back to his house for the last three hours. So I, I spent six hours with him. And the story I tell in the book that, that lingered with me is I didn't think, unlike some of my other writing, I, I didn't think that the important aspect of this was, was saying Paul Bremer is good or bad. Uh, that, that wasn't why I wanted to speak to him. What I wanted to understand is what's it like when you inherit a dictatorship? You're just like this normal diplomat and all of a sudden the dictatorship collapses and then you're in charge of it. And what, what he, the story he told me when I asked him about this, there was, there was a New York Times piece that ran shortly after he took over where somebody had leaked the fact that he raised the idea of shooting looters uh, early on in the occupation as a way to send a signal of, of restoring order in Baghdad. You know, fearing that a civil war would would develop as it ultimately did, and you know, I had some serious misgivings about this, as you might might imagine. I mean, shoot, you know, he could say, "Oh, we'll just shoot him in the leg" or whatever, but it's still, it's it's something that's pretty uncomfortable to talk about. But what he said to me is, he said, "You know, when I was in Norway or Malawi as the ambassador, I mean, n- never in a million years would I have suggested shooting looters. But everything in Iraq was different because." you know, the system had completely broken down and I was being woken up by mortar fire. And, you know, I, my convoy got targeted by IEDs and Osama bin Laden put a 10,000 gram of gold bounty on my head, which I think is unique for Vermont ski instructors. But, uh, you know, the, the point I tried to, to have in the story that I tell about him is he's the same guy he was when he was in Oslo or in, you know, Malawi. And yet his behavior was massively different you know and there's plenty of there's plenty of discussion about the incompetence the unpreparedness etc but what i focus on is this idea that the same individual in two different circumstances can have massively different menus of options that they believe are viable and that helps explain why people in power certainly do things that we sometimes find abhorrent i think applying the standards of you know, proper decorum for, let's say, a small town mayor in Minnesota versus, you know, the dictator of Turkmenistan. It's not a surprise that the dictator of Turkmenistan behaves a bit differently than the small town mayor. So, you know, I, I tried to use him as an example to show how behavior can be so shifted uh, by the context. In late March, early April 2004, a year after the overthrow of Saddam, I was. In Baghdad, I was making an hour-long radio program looking at Iraq a year after the war and researching my book about the Iraq war. And I went to an event organized by the IRI, the International Republican Institute, in the grounds of the, I guess it's the Polo Club. And basically, it was Uday and Qusay Hussein's private playground. Um, there was a race course around it and, you know, stables and whatever. And they'd set up these enormous marquees, tents, and they had brought in tribal leaders from all over Iraq to learn about how to, to make a de- build a democracy, which you may say, well, that's laudable. And I'll never forget, because there was a guy in, in one of the tents that I knew, I had met him during the war, and he was a leading member of one of the major Sunni clowns of Iraq, the Dulaimi. And I was waiting to chat with him to say hello. He has been a friend of the man I was writing my book about who had been murdered after the invasion. And 
this kid, and I'm telling you, Brian, he was a kid. I mean, if he was 28, I'd be amazed. You know, someone who had just finished an MA in international relation, probably at Georgetown heading for think tank world as a career. And he was lecturing them about power. It was a very interesting thing. And I, I surreptitiously recorded it because I'd been told it was all off limits. But I had my secret policeman's mic, a shotgun mic that could pick up if you, if you targeted it just right, about 20 yards in front of you perfectly clearly. And he said to these guys, democracy is about gaining power, winning elections to gain power. And then once you have power, you, can, you have to know what you want to do with it. And I thought it was, it was a, a particular kind of American arrogance because, one, these were men who had survived 30 years of Ba'athism, 25 years of Saddam's totalitarian violence, and it was an incredibly violent regime. So they knew about power. They knew the reality of power, and they also knew how to survive it. But um, it's interesting because we're concerned about why the wrong people, this is what your book is about, is why is it so often that the wrong people get to positions of power? And even people who vote for them know they're the wrong people. There's two sides to this, I think. And, and I think they're both really important. So the first is sort of the who, who throws their hat in the ring when you open up the, the opportunity to take power. Uh, there's a self-selection effect, and I, I write about this at length, that you know, the analogy I use sometimes when I just explain this to people is like, if you went to a high school basketball tryout and the people there were of average height, you would be quite surprised, right? I mean, it would be a very strange dynamic. They're going to be taller than average. The same is true for power in the sense that you know, a certain type of power-hungry person is going to be drawn towards seeking and ultimately obtaining authority over other people. It's a personality trait. So you already have a self-selection of that. Then it gets worse because you have people who are particularly good at getting power quickly and rising the ranks who are people with dark triad traits, which is Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy, being a psychopath. And you think about the systems in which we determine who's our leader or who gets promoted. I mean, they're performances, right? The debate performance, the campaign trail performance, the job interview. Now, Every single expert on psychopaths that I talked to said the same two words very quickly early on in the interview, superficial charm. That's something that defines psychopathy very, very clearly is that they're very, very good at being chameleon-like and making themselves likable to uh, people around them, at least for a short period of time. You start to get a sense that they're a psychopath if you spend you know, hours or days with them. But we don't spend hours or days personally with politicians or business leaders at the top, top echelons of our company, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one, one aspect is that sort of demand side of like who's actually trying to get power. The other thing I don't think we think enough about, though, and it's very, very important, is how the system determines who ends up putting their hat in the ring. And the example that comes to mind is uh, this, this policing uh, research that I did. Where, you know, I was just sitting thinking about this one day, and there was all these discussions about body cameras. I'm from Minneapolis, so you know George Floyd was in the news and so on. And I, I just kept thinking everything that everyone is talking about in this debate is what the police are doing. We're missing this massive piece, which is who becomes an officer, right? who decides that they want to be a policeman. And so I started scouring the Internet looking for examples of police recruitment videos on, on departments in the U.S., 
and then comparing them to those around the world. And the ones that I picked, I mean, they're, they're outliers, potentially. They're extremes, but they're very instructive extremes. One is from Doraville, Georgia, a town of 10,000 people outside of Atlanta. And, I mean, this video is insane. It's like, first off, the Punisher logo flashes on screen, which is, uh, you know, the, the vigilante who basically tortures criminals. And then you have guys in a tank in army fatigues who scream into view in this tank, get out the hatch, throw out some smoke grenades, shoot their guns, get back in the tank, and the whole thing is set to die, mother effer, die by dope, this heavy metal death band. And you're like, you know, you, it's, it's a caricature. I mean, it sounds ridiculous when I explain it, but this is what the video is. And it's on the department website main page up until a couple of years ago when they finally took it down. And I was like, if you go, if you're like a community-oriented person who just wants to like serve the serve the community you come from and you see this video, you're going to think, okay, I'm not going to apply. I mean, the same is definitely true for women and ethnic minorities, by the way, because they weren't depicted in the video of any sort whatsoever. And so I interviewed the head of New Zealand's uh, recruitment for the police. They're, they're, they're sort of head of HR for the national police. And they very deliberately tried to counteract this tendency. They said, look, you know, one of the police officers from, from London actually said to me, if you're a bully or a bigot, being a bully or a bigot with a badge or a gun is a very attractive thing, right? So there's a disproportionate self-selection. So New Zealand said, how can we stop this? And they, they produced this really glitzy video. It's very funny. Uh, it depicts lots of women, lots of Maori indigenous and, and other ethnic minorities who are underrepresented in the police. Um, and they're chasing this unseen criminal and they stop to help an old man cross the road. And then they, you know, a person brings a boombox and they start dancing with him. And then they get to the end and they finally catch up with the, the perpetrator. And it's a dog who's stolen a, a handbag. And it says on the screen, in place of the Punisher logo, instead it says, do you care enough to be a cop? And, you know, I was just like, okay, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that two different types of people are going to apply for these jobs. Uh, and sure enough, that's what the data shows, right? Massive increase in applications in New Zealand, totally different demographics, much more diverse, much lower rates of abuse. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a success story. And, and so the point I'm trying to make throughout the book is, okay, we, we know there's an innate tendency for people with power-hungry traits to seek and obtain power. But that's not the end of the story. The, the story also determines, uh, the system also determines whether that's going to be amplified or depressed. And I think we don't do enough thinking uh, creatively about how to design systems that counteract that very human tendency of, of power-hungry people to wiggle their way uh, up the corporate ladder or up into uh, the highest echelons of politics. That's true. And of course, since Citizens United, there's so much money necessary to... I won't say to run for the local school board, because that's a very fraught topic at the moment in the United States. I will actually go to the school board uh, members, because the reason I got interested in politics as a kid was because my mom ran for the local school board. Uh, and she, she served a stint as, a, as the president of the Minnesota School Boards Association at one point. And you know, when I talked to her about what she was dealing with, I mean, it was a stressful job still. I mean, it's, it was always been a, a, a stressful job. But the, the disputes were over pay. They were over HR policies. There was occasionally a crazy parent who had some issue with evolution. But, you know, it was not really a dangerous job. And, and what's happened in the U.S. now is that people who are thinking about running for school board have to think about death threats. They have to think about their family getting harassed. They have to think about the, the spotlight, you know, the expose in the local newspaper, uh, 
when they just want to help their community schools be a little bit better. And I think what what I often am, am remarking on and I write about in the book is if if you have a power-hungry person and a non-power-hungry person and power itself is unpalatable for all these reasons, you get harassment and death threats and you have to raise a lot of money, the power-hungry person will weigh that up and say, okay, it's worth it. You know, I care about this enough. The non-power-hungry normal person will just say, I'll do something else with my time. You know, I, it's not worth it. And so what I think is, is really worrying in the U.S. is we've actually, you know, when I talk about how the system can either amplify or depress the tendency of, of the wrong kind of people to get towards power, I think we are really screwing that up. I think we're making it very, very un- unattractive for just a, a normal, decent human being who wants to do their bit uh, to actually get into these positions. And, and, and of course, when you go above the school board and you need to raise $12 million for a Senate seat, I mean, the level of not just horribleness that that is to constantly beg people for money, but also, as you say, the moral compromises. And I think, you know, this is one of the reasons why I have a chapter in the book that says power corrupts because it does. And I think what often happens is incremental. I don't think there's like the switch that gets uh, turned on in someone's brain where they, you know, they, they get elected and the next day they're an evil person. I think it's that you make incremental choices that all at the, at the time they're sort of palatable. And then you look back two or three years later and you've done stuff that you never would have done uh, previously because you've made these small incremental changes. There's plenty of evidence I talk about in the book about the neuroscience and psychology aspects of how this happens. But but I think it's quite clear that this length of time uh, is most likely to to have the effects for exactly the reasons you say. It's it's just sort of, do you want to win? Do you want to get this bill passed? Do you want to, you know, get reelected? And all those things add up to some quite unpalatable uh, choices on the way. Given the the analysis of power that you, you provide in Corruptible, and applying it just to the United States. I find I actually say think it's quite remarkable that we've got this far in our history with only one genuinely obvious psychopath elected president and that's the 45th president who still won't admit that he lost and won't acknowledge his successor. I have no doubt that George W. Bush, the second Bush was supported by two psychopaths and and farmed out a lot of his executive authority to Dick Cheney and, and, and Donald Rumsfeld. We all lived with the consequences of that. We still live with the consequences of that. I don't think George Bush was actually a psychopath. But by and large, America, you know, America's top job has not gone to crazy people, you know, and, and even reading Carol's unfinished book, about Lyndon Johnson, and and there was a power mad fellow. He lied like a rug, but it was real political lying, and it was always he always had a clear idea of why he was doing it. And I don't think of him really as a psychopath. You know, he just in the end he was overmatched by the dilemmas of his presidency in in you know in terms of the war. I don't know. I mean, do, do you do you agree? I mean, that's that's me talking. I mean, do, do you agree that, that America's actually done rather well to get? 200 plus years into the experiment before it came up against Donald Trump. Yeah, so there's, there's, there have been some uh, psychologists who have tried to measure psychopathy in past presidents, which I think is quite an uncertain thing to do. I, I don't have a lot of confidence in the ability historically to, to sort of accurately assess that. I think all we can do is look at how they behaved. 
And I think this is the thing that's really difficult is we may well have had people with these traits who were constrained by a system that hadn't been tested the way it's been tested more recently. And I think that's one of the one of the great dilemmas is that, you know, what what Trump did was he was willing to break rules that were unwritten, un, unwritten norms effectively and show that they're actually not constraints. But if people believed they were constraints at the time, like they would destroy their presidency, then that would mitigate some of their worst impulses. And, you know, there's there's some of these uh, some of the studies that I, I was looking at. One of the ones that I find really, really interesting is, you know, I think by and large, the U.S. is a, in comparative terms, even now, is a decently well-governed, uh, you know, decently constrained system relative. I mean, I'm talking relative to, you know, Turkmenistan or Malawi or Madagascar. But in the past, I think it was better. <laughs> and And that matters because the type of person who gravitates towards the system is partly determined by that that level of constraint. So what I mean by that is there's this, there's this amazing study these economists did that I find very, very persuasive, where they had uh, students at a university roll a dice 42 times. Uh, and they said, every time you get a six, we're going to give you some money. But you have to write down how many times you got the sixes. We're not going to know. We're not going to watch you. So you can lie about it. And of course, with statistical methods, they could figure out who was lying, um, especially because one guy in India uh, wrote down that he got 42 sixes in a row, which I, I applaud his brazenness. But, uh, but the point was, then they did a questionnaire and they said, you know, what do you want to do with your career? And then they lined that up with the number of people who lied. And in India, where the civil service has a lot of kickbacks and bribes, the people who lied on the dice rolls were massively overrepresented in those who wanted to become government bureaucrats and government officials. When they did the exact same study in Denmark, it was inverted. It was everybody who was honest wanted to go into the uh, government. And so, you know, I think this is one of those things where you think about, oh, you know, people say who are, who are on the right, especially in, in the political right in the U.S. now, oh, you know, who cares? Tr Trump didn't destroy the system completely. You know, it's like, no, but his conduct and the way that he showed that the rules are actually breakable means that the next generation of Republicans are going to be different from the crop of Republicans when they believe that there was a more constrained system. And I think that's the that's the lesson is, you know, there and, and there was a sort of professional ethos among uh, politicians in the U.S. too, where they held each other accountable. I mean, one of the things, this isn't something I talk about in the book, but one of the things that's occurred to me over the course of the last five years of the Trump era and post-Trump era is it used to not be necessary for voters to cause somebody to resign. They were forced to resign by their party or by their colleagues because they said this is just, the Senate doesn't have this. And that level of shame and professional enforcement of the cohort itself has disappeared. So I think, you know, you might have had psychopaths in the Senate or in the presidency who actually knew that there would be consequences if they behave like Donald Trump. And he's the first one to prove that that's not true. And I think that's where, you know, again, it's this interaction between the self-selection effect and the system that, that can really mediate uh, whether you get worse or better leaders in charge. I, I made a note while I was reading the book that you take the uh, Cassius theory of history um, from Julius Caesar. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. And that much of corruption, the, the corruptibility of political systems, business, you know, the economy, all systems that make up our complex societies are corruptible. That's the title of your book. And that, in a sense, it's what we tolerate. I wonder if you, in writing the book, 
had any thoughts that really this this problem of corruption is basically it's our problem and it's from our neglect that it, it's created. This is where I, I, I do turn the mirror back on ourselves and I sort of say, why do we let awful people, uh, you know, lead us? Uh, because I think that's something that we don't talk about enough. I think there's a lot of sort of the, the armchair quarterbacking that exists where you say, oh, gosh, you know, our politicians are terrible. It's like, well, how do you think they got there? I mean, a certain number of people voted for them, right? <laughs> Especially in Western democracies where you actually have a choice in the matter. And and that was always, you know, that was the thing that, that struck me when I, the first time I actually went back to the U.S. after the uh, Trump election, I was in an airport and I just had this thought pop into my head where I said, okay, I know that, you know, about 40% of adults didn't vote and three in 10 voted for Clinton and three in 10 voted for Trump. But it's weird to me to look around and think, you know, Three out of every 10 people I see actually think Donald Trump is a great, you know, a good leader. He should be in charge. And that was a really jarring experience coming from the UK where, I mean, one out of every 100 people probably thinks that, you know. So, so it was, uh, it, that, was, that was quite astonishing to think about. And then it, that, that led to some of the thoughts in the book of like, what is it about us that lets this happen? And, and some of it is superficial. I mean, I think that's one of the aspects that uh, also struck a chord with me. It was, there's, there's a study I talk about early on in the book where um, children are shown faces and they're supposed to choose who's in charge of their imaginary ship in this computer simulation, who looks like a leader to them. And what they didn't know was that one of the faces they saw won the French parliamentary election in their district and the other face was the person who was the runner-up. But yet, you know, an overwhelming majority of the time, they picked the winner as the captain of their ship with no other information. And adults did the same thing. And it's like, okay, we might think that our choices are always rational, but there's some superficial characteristics that are playing a role in this. There's the strongman aspect I talked about. There's some studies I I cite in the book about the value of overconfidence in convincing people to follow you uh, and how that might have been adaptive in the past, but is no longer adaptive in modern society. And yet we still follow overconfident blowhards who are, you know, never uncertain, but often wrong. And, and I think that's one of the real dilemmas is that the the problem isn't just solving who tries to get power. The problem is not just solving the system. It's also a reflection of how we pick our leaders, ourselves, what we find appealing. To me, one of the critical questions of history is very often, I mean, nobody wants to have a revolution. Revolution's a subset of civil war. No matter how bad a society gets, I think most people understand, once you have civil war, it's over. I mean, even in America, where there was a civil war and you'd think that it was all over, we we learn in 2021 that the Confederate mindset is very strong and it's spread out of the Deep South. I mean, you can find it, dare I say, even in Minnesota now certainly in in your neighboring states in North Dakota and South Dakota and, and so on. And I have always been fascinated by the fact that no matter how noble the intentions of people who create revolutions, whether in France or in Russia, it goes south really quickly. And it goes south because of the problems of power. Is it ever possible to imagine that when a society becomes so rotten that the only way to save it is through some kind of revolution in the name of the people. It's always in the name of the people or the nation. 
I don't have an answer to that. And I, I think that the catastrophic breaks are sometimes inevitable in those societies that are that broken. What I don't think, though, and this is where, you know, to, 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 to sort of cinch up some of the book ideas, I met a lot of really awful people who operate in some really broken systems, right? I mean, that was one of the things that I always have as a through line. But one of the strange things about reconciling that is that I, I have a generally positive view of human nature. I think most people are good and decent. And I also think that most times that you have bad people, you can force them to, to behave better, maybe not well, maybe not with the right intent or motivations, but you can, you can stop them from doing bad things. And so I'm quite an optimist over the long run. I'm very pessimistic in the short run. I think things are going really the wrong way right now. But I, but I do think that there are ways to fix these problems. Maybe it's going to take a catastrophic collapse for us to wake up to it, but uh, but I do think there's a, a better way. And so, you know, it's 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 a really strange thing because I've spent much of the last five years professionally being labeled as an alarmist for for ringing the warning bells about Trumpism and authoritarian takeovers and so on. I still sort of think there's you know a brighter future, but I maybe it's in a hundred years. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean that's the that's that's the paradox i don't know how how soon it'll come i don't think it's in one or two years unfortunately i think it's going to be uh worse before it gets better at least in the united states brian it's been great talking to you and and i i want to thank you for the book because i think it's dedicated to me because the dedication of the book is to all the nice non-psychopaths out there who should be in power but aren't and and i've always felt that i should be in charge but I would never put, I, you know, ever since I didn't win election to class president in first grade at PS6 in New York, I can't do it. I'm going to lose. And, and so I just stopped putting myself forward for office. But your, your dedication encourages me as a non-psychopath to put myself forward to try and completely recreate the world in, in, in the image I, ha I would like it to be. Well, you should, you should be pleased you didn't get elected because also, as I talk about, uh, people in power age faster and die younger. So, uh, you know, there's a silver lining here that you're not in charge of everything. <laughs> I'll tell my wife that. Okay, Brian, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Michael. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, and while you are there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. <laughs>